Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. We made it through the week. Happy Friday. Happy weekend. Uh, as I wrote in my newsletter this morning, the obituaries for centrism may have been premature, but I, I, I just want to caution against irrational exuberance. And of course, to join me in, in that effort, uh, our colleague, Bill Crystal. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm fine. Great to be with you, Charlie. As we oscillate between exuberance, irrational exuberance, and irrational pessimism, but I guess we're pretty much in between the two, right? Well, I kind of had this feeling, this moment in which I feel we have to sort of grasp onto when, when things look like they're going right, when things are actually working the way they're supposed to. Uh, you, you have this report in Michigan where Republicans say, uh, hey, there was nothing wrong with the election. Okay, that's good. This is This is fine. You have the you have the, uh, the the court in New York stripping Rudy Giuliani of his of his law license because he'd been lying so much in court that that's that that's that's a good thing. Uh, the the defund police movement was uh, handed a humiliating and decisive defeat in in New York. So maybe we're going to have a burst of rationality that we might have a actually a bipartisan deal on police reform. So this stuff is good. We, we're going to have a, you know, a select committee on, on January 6th, on the January 6th insurrection. And then you have that, that infrastructure compromise, which, which is really a, a BFD, you know, the president coming out and saying we have a deal. And I really want to believe that, that this is this moment where, oh my God, uh, Joe Biden is actually proving all the pundits wrong. We're actually going to have a moment of bipartisanship, but you know, uh, usual caveats, uh, a lot can go wrong here. What do you think? You know, I guess if when we're living through other historical periods, afterwards the historians say, clearly at this moment, this was an inflection point when bipartisanship, you know, came back or, or Biden turned a corner and or whatever. But of course, when you're living through it, it's a total mess and complicated and they're contradictory indications. So I'm, I'm sort of of two minds. And um, no, look, I agree. On the whole, I'm slightly, the glass is slightly more than half full, I think, in the sense that, I mean, there was a nightmare scenario of a Biden administration sort of failing right off the bat, not doing a good job on COVID, a real economic setbacks of some kind, real foreign policy catastrophes. And just avoiding that is after Trump, after four years of Trump, and really after 12 years of Obama and Trump, I'd say, in some of these areas, uh, the Biden's reestablishment of a kind of centrism and a kind of competence matters a lot, I think. And, and and the fact that he's reasonably popular and 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 trying to cut these bipartisan deals and apparently succeeding in some areas is important. So yeah, I think it's wise to be slightly on the side of of optimism, as long as the optimism doesn't lead to kind of false reassurance, because there are an awful lot of vectors in our society going the other way. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into this, but the the strategy they have now on on uh, reconciliation with the infrastructure package, it's a two-track uh, uh, strategy where you're going to push through, you hope to get uh, 60 votes, 60 plus votes for the compromise deal. And then they've linked that to then uh, coming back with a, another much bigger package that they would just shove through uh, on reconciliation. And they've, they've tied them together rather in an interesting way. Nancy Pelosi says they won't even have a vote in the House unless both are passed. And Joe Biden is saying he won't sign uh, his own compromise bill unless the other one is passed, which, of course, has got Republicans saying, hey, wait, uh, kind of a bait and switch. It just strikes me that that sets up a scenario for multiple clusterfucks um, with, with, with attacks from both the right and the left, because, you know, this would be a huge victory. 
for Joe Biden, which means that the right is going to be completely invested, and Mitch McConnell obviously as well, completely invested in finding some way to derail this. And by doing it this way, they've made it much easier to derail. I, 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 look, I don't want to throw a cold blanket on all of this, but I think we need to need to be realistic about how fragile this this deal is right now. And they probably thought they had to do it this way be, to keep uh, the left on board because the, they the lefties, yeah. such narrow majorities. They didn't want to just, you know, the left was worried they would just get the Republican compromise and nothing more. I mean, I think I think you really touched on a, a key point here, which I, I've been thinking about a lot. Really, since um, your excellent podcast with our friend John Rausch and my conversation with him, I think which mm-hmm. were, I think, complementary of one another because they're yeah. uh, sort of focused on slightly different points, but you know, and and what really came home to me talking to to, to Jonathan, and I'll come back to this. I'll show how this relates to what we were just talking about in a second. Is you know, people focus a lot, and I have too, on hyperpartisanship and how dangerous that, how bad that is for 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 our politics. And in a way, when you talk about a compromise, you're talking about bipartisanship, so you think of it in those political terms. But Jonathan, in his new book, The Constitution of Knowledge, and in our conversations with him, stresses uh, the other aspect of hyperpartisanship, which is uh, uh, negative partisanship even, which is affective polarization, a term I really hadn't focused mm-hmm. on, I'd say, into the last few months. I don't know, maybe I missed, affective with I missed some of the social yeah. science yeah. and social psychology yeah. stuff. You too? I mean, yeah. Did, yeah. No, but, and, but so for the listeners, affective, right, with an A. Right. So, and, and the, the notion is that there's polarization in the society, that it has gone, there was a big political science debate 10 years ago, is it just the elites in D.C. that are polarized? The country looks okay. People go to the Little League games, state and local governments seem to work okay. Pretty clear that some of that polarization, not all of it, has permeated down through the country. And it's affective uh, in the sense that uh, it, it's not, it's about, it's about hating the other side much more than it's about any particular issues right. or, or policies. And therefore, it's very hard to resolve because, you know, you can't just say, okay, well, look on this policy, let's go halfway in, in this direction. And one, one wrinkle on it, incidentally, that I thought John points out very well is it, it's people are so distrustful of the whole system and, and are so encouraged to be, to dislike everything that they don't like their own party either. But then, of course, if you don't like your own party much, to hate the other party, you have to really demonize the other party. And I, I do think that's a very big insight into Trump, that it's not a bug, it's a feature of Trumpism that they hate, hate, hate the left and are willing to utterly demonize and, of course, you know, uh, attack them, them as traitors, basically. But they also don't like the Republicans. And the not liking the Republican establishment is, is not, as I say, not a bug. It's a feature of this kind of cycle or spiral of effective polarization. Anyway, if you get a political deal like this infrastructure one, I mean, that's the kind of thing that in 30 years ago, it's a little complicated, but you've got leaders in both parties who can sort of muscle it through. The country is says, look, if this is the way the sausage gets made, it's the way it gets made. We end up with adequate policies. We end up with a bipartisan policy and a democratic policy, but the Democrats have the presidency in Congress. So what do you expect? And, you know, people kind of live with it and they see how it works out. In an era of hyperpartisanship, negative partisanship, and effective polarization, the 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 hackles are up right away on both sides, and the odds of this kind of deal getting unraveled go go up exponentially. I think. Well, I think so, and, and also, you know, I was, as as you were talking, I was I was thinking about the fact that that it, 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 let's go for the drug analogy. It, it is like the, that uh, that you have to keep increasing the doses. 
because mm-hmm. you're tolerant. So, so you 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 have to ratchet it up constantly, which we're seeing. It's it's not just that the other party is bad. The other party is well. It's it's basically Hitler, whatever it is. You know, it's a it it it's not that the party has bad fiscal policies. It leads to the death camps. I mean, it, this is the this is the trend, and I think that social media encourages that. Now, speaking of which. The uh, the intensification of hyperpartisanship, and I don't I don't want to go into the quagmire of critical race theory again. But uh, as a reminder of how this works, that that's there's constant the constant ratcheting up of of, of attacks. Uh, Tucker Carlson last night, and I apologize in advance for playing a clip of Tucker Carlson, but this is really quite extraordinary. Where um, and I want to get to his attack on General Milley in just a moment, but. He's talking about anti-white mania and suggesting that it's going to lead to some sort of white genocide. Now, to put it mildly, the whole concept of white genocide was until about five minutes ago the sole province of the most extreme white nationalists out there. I mean, this is you, – you want to talk about a, a you know very, very specific tell if you began talking about the fact that we might have a race war and they're going to kill white people. Um, that's the kind of thing that you would have normally seen confined to, say, a neo-Nazi website. Well, you know, thanks to Rupert Murdoch and Fox News, it was broadcast last night. And so Tucker Carlson is talking about – uh, like like everybody else is talking about critical race theory, and he's actually invoking the possibility that the United States would become Rwanda. No points for subtlety here, but let me just play this short soundbite from Tucker Carlson. The question is, and this is the question that we should be meditating on day in and day out, is how do we get out of this vortex, this cycle, before it's too late? How do we save this country before we become Rwanda? What should we be teaching our children so they can live in the country that you want to live in? A country full of many different kinds of people, many different, but who actually like each other, who are happy to work together, who are united ultimately by the core fact, which is they're all Americans. Yeah, that sounds good. That is the question. No. It's something that Victor Davis Hanson has thought a lot Agreed, about, and we're very no, happy. No, we're, not, we're, not, we're not going to go to Victor Professor, Davis Hanson. So no, no. So he, we, before that, um, in, in the full soundbite, he says, you know, pundit after senator after professor after general, each one of them spewing race hate. Okay, so, and he's going to refer to General Milley. Whiteness, white rage, dressed up as some new academic theory. We certainly have the tape. We'll spare you because you've seen it. It's everywhere. But now he's talking about Rwanda. So we're, we're already talking about the possibility of race war and massacres where, I mean, let's face it, he's, he's trying to conjure some image of black people with machetes killing white people. I mean, is, that, is that going too far, Bill? <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you think it's kind, yeah. of, kind of nuts in so many ways um, and dangerous, of course. Um, you know, what's interesting about Rwanda, and I'm no expert on it, but I remember it, obviously, and it was one of the things that made me much more of a, if you want to use the term, uh, liberal interventionist in foreign policy because we stayed out of it. And, of course, a million people were, were killed. But one of the, I think if you look at the studies, uh, well, even the reporting at the time, but certainly the book, the articles and books written afterwards about Rwanda, one of the key insiders of the violence was broadcast on radio, yeah, right. which was the main medium of communication, I think, in that country at that time. People didn't have televisions, presumably, uh, as much, um, uh, which, you know, in, uh, were, they, they, 
they they broadcast lies about slaughters on one side that then led to uh, you know massive slaughters from the from the other side from the majority side really and and so in that respect the the fact that mass media were complicit in uh, the slaughter in Rwanda and and people really thought about that afterwards how do we restrict you know how how do we sort of prevent this kind of thing on in in third world countries frankly you know where, where people are using radios to to uh, radio broadcast to uh, encourage genocide and here we have fox news i mean you know using using its broadcast uh, platform to uh, quite routinely now just work people up into a frenzy about what's happening in the country, work the majority group uh, into a frenzy. And again, is every document the military is using to teach soldiers a little bit about, you know, what's happening on on race relations in the U.S. and how they should think about it perfect? I'm sure not. General Milley and General Austin and the military as a whole, you know, foam, uh, uh, you know creating a climate of white, of, of, of which I mean, either either of, of, I don't quite know what he's saying. Is he saying that they're they're indulging in white rage, their white rage, or they're they're claiming that all whites have rage, or they're laying the groundwork for an assault on white people? It's all so nuts, right? Well, it, mean, it, it, it's nuts, but but you point out it is also dangerous. And this was the one thing that really struck me as I was listening to this because uh, you know we've been talking about the the rediscovery of the Tulsa race massacre, you know, that occurred a hundred years ago. And it's very clear that that massacre was really stoked in part by the media coverage. Uh, mm. And in fact, you know, one of the big headlines, you know, in the Tulsa Tribune was nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. And that was, mm. you know, in late May 1921. And this was the story that set Tulsa ablaze. Um, you know, and it talked about this alleged assault attempt by a black man of a white woman and then suggested that that, you know, that the black people were uh, were arming and they were going to they were they were going to massacre white people. And that's how it that that's what set it off. Yeah, that's and it was. I mean, Tulsa, there, are, that's, there are these headlines out there. Yeah, that's a more you know apt, I suppose, comparison than Rwanda. I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it that in the American terms, but you're absolutely right there too. So, yeah, so this is genuinely dangerous. I mean, what Fox is doing at this point, what Tucker's Carlson is being permitted to say on Fox's air is beyond just kind of distasteful or unpleasant or, you know, marginally kind of damaging to the political system. It is really damaging to our country. And I do now think that everyone who works for Fox, everyone who's on the board of directors of Fox, they need to really think hard about what they're tolerating in the case of the board of directors or in the case of his colleagues being silent about. You know, I, I, I made this point on Twitter, but Brett Baer, whom I knew, of course, I was on there with him many, many times between about 2002 and 2012 when I left Fox. Um, Brett w- started off as a Pentagon correspondent. I remember when, when Brett Hume hosted the 6 p.m. show, Brett often was on uh, with, you know, this was during the Iraq War and Afghanistan, so there was a ton of news coming from the Defense Department, from the Pentagon. Brett was very uh, good, a very good Pentagon reporter, very close to the military leadership and to many uh, uh, soldiers and Marines and and members of the of the armed services. I mean, I think he hosted charity dinners for them. I mean, he was a really you know I think sincerely and earnestly 
uh, respected and admired those who were serving our country in uniform, and I, I assume he does to this day. Then you watch Tucker, he, his colleague, who's on, what, two hours after him? I don't watch the evening, yeah, evening stuff like anything that. on Fox, but two or three hours after him, uh, is, is, is trashing General Milley in the well, most let's, vulgar let's, let's, and let's, extreme let, ways. Let, let's, let's play that, because it, actually when I saw this uh, on Twitter first, I thought it was somebody who was paraphrasing Tucker Carlson. I didn't think he used the actual words. This is Tucker Carlson. This is what he said last night about a decorated a decorated general, somebody who has served his country, who has fought for his country, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Let's play that clip. Being, quote, woke. <laughs> he's not just a pig, he's stupid. So Mark Milley uh, reads what? Mao to understand Mao. He, he's not just a pig, he's stupid. I mean, first of all, Bill, the, just the dumbing down, the vulgarity of it. I mean, I'm not, not pearl-clutching here. It's just the... It's this tsunami of stupidity and insults from this, you know, this pampered trust fund kid spitting on the military. This is something I didn't see coming, the way the right would turn on the military. No, it is. I mean, it is unbelievable that he's doing this. And incidentally, General Milley, I mean, it, it wouldn't matter who appointed him. He's, he served the country either way. But he was appointed chairman, of course, by President Trump, somewhat to the discomfort, I would say, of others in the defense world and in the military who thought Milley had maybe done a little bit too much, uh, you know, courting of Trump as army chief of staff. But anyway, and then Milley, of course, went with Trump. I think he immediately regretted it uh, as they were a year ago when they walked across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church. Milley happened to be in uniform, so that was a very bad moment. And Milley, to his credit, immediately sort of apologized and 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 uh, has, has made clear that that was a mistake. So this isn't some kind of liberal general who, you know, made it up in the Obama years, right? I mean, so just, just to emphasize the point of how unbelievable it is now what Tucker Carlson is saying. You know, I didn't expect the turn against the military. They tend to want to glorify the military and others in uniform, the law enforcement officers. Uh, they're turning against both of those. You do wonder, therefore, I mean, I... Is this the McCarthy army here? You know, McCarthy, Joe McCarthy got away with attacking pinstripe diplomats at the State Department. A lot of Americans thought, right. yeah, those guys probably are kind of a feat and don't like America much and, you know, are giving away our interests in their cozy negotiations with foreigners and so forth. Uh, when they turned to attacking the U.S. Army, that maybe was a bridge too far. Is it for the current uh, right-wing demagogues? And, uh, Interesting and, uh, question. I don't know. No, that's an interesting question. Okay, let's let's talk about uh, Nikki Haley and, and and Mike Pence. Okay, so let's start with Nikki Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, somebody that you and I I think had one time had some uh, some high hopes for, and uh, earlier this year uh, in an interview with Politico, uh, she had distanced herself from from President Trump and his role in the January sixth insurrection. Said we should never make that mistake again. She is back completely all in. Uh, saying that it, you know that the time for being nice is over, and she wears high heels because she can kick people, and she's all in on Donald Trump. It's you know just just reading it is my cringe is cringe, listening to to Nikki Haley. Well, it is you. It is you. I mean, said earlier the stupidity of just the, and the way in which it's just gibberish and kind of silliness about the high heels. And I mean, come on. I guess the days of being well. nice should be over. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Did she miss the last five years? Yeah. But, I mean, it's like okay, I mean, no more, Mister Nice Guy. We're not yeah. just gonna. We're just not gonna hit you. You know, in the in the face with with flagpoles. We're gonna what? 
This was the problem with the Republican Party in the Trump years. And frankly, even in the Mitch McConnell years, it was too nice to its political opponents. Yeah, that's really the official doctrine now in a sense of Trumpism in 2021. That it was it was the problem of 2017 to 2020 was that it was too nice. No, it's really unbelievable. And um, you know, how long ago was it? I was it's just six, seven years, right? When did Nikki Haley take down the Confederate flag? Yeah. over the South Carolina capital in Columbia. I think it was 2014, maybe. Someone can check this. But, um, and uh, so that's what, seven years ago, it's really amazing. And she was, you know, lauded for that. I think quite properly so. And that's when, I remember that was one of the earlier moments when someone like me who hadn't paid close attention realized, you know, a lot of this Confederate stuff, which I'd sort of been willing to excuse as earnest, you know, paying respects to people who had fought and died for a a mistaken cause, a, a bad cause. But, you know, they were decent, Obviously, individuals, presumably probably you know, some 19-year-old kid or something fighting in the war that these monuments were put up. There was a kind of foolish nostalgia for the Confederate flag, but it was it was more nostalgia than 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 you know active uh, racist or white supremacist sentiments or pro, you know you know. Then it turns out well, when was the Confederate flag put up and over the South Carolina Capitol? I think it turned out in 1961 or something like that. You know, it was totally a gesture of contempt for the civil rights movement and a, and a, and a resuscitation of the old South as an attempt to to discredit uh, the modern civil rights movement. So it was, she was totally right to take it down. Yeah, was, I think it was 2015, yeah. 2015, so think of that just six years ago. I mean, that, that is, Nikki Haley, maybe even more than Pence or Trump or some of these others, shows the 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 real decline and degeneracy of the Republican Party from 2015 to 2021. Well, also, do you remember during the during the 2016 primary campaign, she also uh, uh, broke with, with Donald Trump and gave a speech where she talked about, uh, uh, we don't need more angry voices out there. And she yeah. specifically was that voice of, you know, calm. And now she's saying, hey, time for nice, and I'm wearing these high heels so I can kick people in the face. By, by the way, she's um, she has been backing away from that Confederate flag uh, moment for some time now. In fact, uh, back in 2019, she went on Glenn Beck's show and she said that uh, the Confederate flag symbolized service, sacrifice, and heritage for for people until Dylan Roof, uh, the murderer, uh, hijacked it. You know, mm-hmm. the Dylan Roof, the avowed white supremacist to kill nine black uh, parishioners. Uh, in June of 2015, so she she's actually been been doing this dance. Okay, so and also um, can I just say one thing about yeah, her? I, mean, sure. I, I met her you yeah. know, several times, as you did, I'm sure, when we were when we were in good uh, graces with with elected Republicans and conservatives, and and she was reasonably impressive. And I met her her husband once, actually. I can't remember the occasion, but there, you know, it was more of a uh, I don't know, some conference that the you know spouses came to and so forth, uh, maybe uh, kids. Her husband, I believe, was—I don't think he still is—you um, know—an army officer um, of, of some. Anyway, he's in the military, certainly. And we t- chatted about that. And our son was—I think—at that point in the military, and so we talked about that and all that. Maybe Nikki Haley could say a word about uh, Tucker Carlson and Matt Gates trashing the U.S. military. This strikes me as highly um, unlikely. Okay, so <laughs> on, on, a, on a flip side, or, or not a complete flip side here, I'm. I have Amanda Carpenter's uh, voice in my head here. Uh, Mike Pence uh, yesterday gave a speech in which he went out of his way, it looks like, 
to distance himself from from Trump and his demands that he overturned the election. So this is the way it's being reported. I will always be proud that we did our part on that tragic day, January 6th, to reconvene the Congress and fulfilled our duty under the constitutional laws of the United States. Uh, he noted that as vice president, he had no constitutional authority to reject or return electoral votes submitted to Congress by the states which, of course, is what Trump was demanding that he do. The truth is, he said, there is almost no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Hmm. Time says there was, this was the furthest that Pence, a potential presidential candidate, in 2024 has gone yet in defending his role that day or distancing himself from Mr. Trump, to whom he ingratiated himself during their four years together in office. So put them side by side. Nikki Haley sounds like she's doing it whatever possible to ingratiate herself with MAGA. Maybe she's hoping for a spot on the second uh, Trump ticket as the VP nominee. Mike Pence kind of drawing a line saying, I'm not apologizing for this. I'm proud. In fact, it was un-American. Uh, it would have been un you know highly un-American to do what Donald Trump wanted me to do on January 6th. So what's your take on this? I mean, I'm glad Pence has said this. It took him a little while to be this uh, forthright uh, in defending himself. Uh, just about a month ago, he was kind of very shying away, you might say, from being nearly as uh, outspoken on this. But no, I think it's a good thing. Now, I think politically it makes sense for him because this, if you, he did what he did on January 6th and the Trump people we're never going to forgive him. And more importantly, Donald Trump, it's become clear, is never going to forgive him. Mm -hmm. So what's Pence's, I don't think it's a very likely lane, but what's his possible lane forward in Republican politics? It's to be the person who was engaged in every Trump policy side by side. I mean, a lot of them to, to you and me, very distasteful, but nonetheless, and he apologized for all kinds of things he should never have and so forth. But nonetheless, if you want to tell yourself as a kind of Republican who was voted for Trump twice, but January 6th, that really was kind of over the top and this election stuff's a little crazy. But you know what? The judges, the tax cuts, even the kind of demagoguery about, you know, all kinds of things, that stuff was kind of good. Then you could presume what Pence thinks is he's the guy who was side by side with Pence on all, the, with Pence, with Trump on all the defensible stuff, but did break and isn't apologizing for breaking with Trump on January 6th. There's probably some lane for that in Republican and conservative world, right? And and insofar as Haley and DeSantis aren't quite as willing to, to, to distinguish themselves from Trump, maybe Pence thinks he's found a bit of a an opening here. He's not Liz Cheney on the one hand, and he's not, uh, you know, pure MAGA on the other hand. On on the third hand, how big is that lane? I don't know. Not not terribly big, I suspect. <laughs> no, it, it it is not big. But you're right. He you know he's it's it's what he's got, and he can't he really can't run away from it. Um, I, I want to talk about something, and you and I briefly discussed it before we started the podcast. I, I'm actually more angry about this than I've let on. <laughs> so I want to just sort of signal that the uh, the embrace of anti-vaxism by certain politicians who ought to know better and clearly who do not, and the latest story is, unfortunately, from my home state here in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, Ron Anon, is announcing that he's holding a press conference on Monday in Milwaukee with families across the country who will share their experiencing experiences regarding adverse reactions to COVID-19 vaccines and how the medical community has repeatedly ignored their concerns. You put out a press release yesterday. 
the senator will also speak to his advocacy uh, for uh, the importance of America's health care freedom, blah, 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 blah. So here you have Ron Johnson, who's been under fire for his conspiracy theories, some of his reckless comments about January 6th, uh, pushing unproven treatments for the coronavirus. And uh, clearly, he's not listening to any of those critics because he is doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on this. But you know, this is what makes me more angry. There are real world consequences to this political push against the vaccinations by people who um, have no scientific uh, expertise whatsoever. And people will die as a result of it. And the rest of us will be endangered because with the variants that are spreading, uh, this, this disease is still very real and it still poses a huge disaster. So it is the recklessness. It is just the, the cynicism behind it that is breathtaking to me. It is extraordinary. I'm also much more, I've gotten much more angry about it in the last week or two, as I've kind of focused on the fact, and I think a lot of people have now that, I mean, at one point I thought, okay, look, they're idiotic and they're, you know, do endanger themselves and others they're persuading not to be vaccinated. But I guess those of us who are vaccinated can now go about our lives. And most of us are in America. And so, and more of us hopefully will be is gradually, you know, people still gradually uh, accept it and, and use it. And then we go down the age scale too. And so, you know, at the end of the day, there's a limit to how much you can make people be responsible. And so it's bad. It's bad for the healthcare system. It's bad for them. It's bad for their relatives. But, you know, it's ultimately probably not not too much more you can do except for occasionally lecture people about how they should get vaccinated. But I, it's brought, been brought home to me in the last couple of weeks just how, how, as you say, really dangerous it is for everyone. Because, I mean, A, I happened to, I, I ran into a friend uh, at a grocery store whose daughter is... Uh, uh, immune deficient because of, uh, well, I don't know, because of a treatment. Mm. And uh, she actually got the shot, but it doesn't, I guess you can then test afterwards, of course, and you don't have the the antibodies. And so it doesn't work for you if, you have, if you've had certain, you know, procedures, transplants, I think is one, but others as well. And so there's, so they were taught, we talked about it. I mean, what do they do? You know, if, 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 if not everyone who could be getting vaccinated is getting vaccinated, uh, if it's 30% not vaccinated instead of 5% or 10%, the odds of her getting, you know, uh, catching the uh, COVID, uh, getting infected when she goes to a, you know, to work or to a store or to a, a social event are higher. And so it's really a practical problem. Are we going to keep, are people going to have to stay kind of, you know, locked up if they have these medical conditions, A, and then B, this evidence now from Israel and from other countries that these new variants are, uh, they're not, you know, luckily the vaccine still works in huge, in large measure, but these new variants are uh, more d dangerous and you can get them. You don't die usually, but you can mm -hmm. get them. You can, the vaccine doesn't entirely perhaps protect against them. And, you know, and again, the more it gets, it's allowed to spread, the more variants can then spread. So yeah, it is endangering a lot of people, including people who've been vaccinated. So the, the chances of a sort of recurrence go way up. So I'm much angrier about the irresponsibility actually, than, like you, than I was, you know, just a few weeks ago where I thought it probably would have limited effect on everyone else. And I really wonder, as a matter of policy, therefore, whether people shouldn't, certainly at least rhetorically, we need another, you know, round of persuading people to do the right thing and discrediting of the anti-vaxxers, um, you know, whether we should even be tougher in terms of requiring people to be vaccinated 
for whether maybe we, but whether colleges, universities, schools, businesses shouldn't really take it upon themselves. I, I have to. no problem with that at all. I, I yeah. don't even understand the the reluctance to do it. Anybody that's ever sent a child to school knows how many vaccines and vaccinations you're required to have and show proof for. If you want to travel abroad, you're going to have to show proof that you've been vaccinated. Um, this is not something that we have not experienced before. How did this be, how did this become a conservative slash right wing issue. There's no conservative principle involved here. I mean, it used to be the anti-vaxxers were a bunch of left wing freaks like, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. And now suddenly it's like Ron Johnson, you know, who, you know, used to own a plastics firm who's who's now holding press conference. I mean, this the politicization of, of medicine is just one of the dumbest things in our dumb time. Yeah, I had a real instance, I think, of what we talked about earlier, effective polarization. And once something becomes, you know, an issue in the culture war, then people just, the spiral begins and people end yeah. up taking positions that if you had said, yeah, just two, three, four years ago, even in, you know, that this was going to be the, the Ron Johnson position, to some degree, the, the position on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. And here I do come back, therefore, to the fundamental responsibility. People are going to die because of what Tucker Carlson's saying. And, what Tuck, and Tucker Carlson's saying what he's saying because the board of directors of Fox is letting him say that and continuing to employ him. And the board of directors of Fox includes Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, whom I had a you know a mm-hmm. good relationship with and was grateful to for sponsoring the funding the Weekly Standard for the first 15 years of our existence. And Paul Ryan, your friend uh, and mine, yeah. or former friend of my, mine uh, uh, from Wisconsin, <sighs> is on the board of Fox. And what, what? Nothing. Nothing. So fine. So people are now going to be endangered because Carlson's spewing this nonsense. And, and is Mitch McConnell going to speak up, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, against what Ron Johnson's saying? Monday McConnell, to his credit, has been responsible on the vaccine and personally has said the right things when asked or occasionally. But is he going to go out of his way to repudiate this? Are we going to have a letter from 48 Republican senators saying, you know, this is terrible what our colleague is doing here? I rather doubt it. No, I, I I wrote an open letter to Paul Ryan saying, Paul, um, gosh, if, if you ever want to, you know, draw the line, this is it. I mean, this is this, your 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 legacy is uh, is 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 not is not complete. Um, but if you don't draw the line about the attacks on democracy and the raw, increasingly raw racism, what what are you waiting for? What what would be the trigger where you'd go, hey, you know, I really appreciate this three hundred thousand dollar check I'm getting for sitting on the board of directors, but uh, obviously, I don't want to be a director of a country that is pumping this kind of toxic sludge into the into the uh, you know polity, and of course, that's not going to happen. Uh, so. Uh, speaking, of, we'll talk about the fact that the president's going back, the former president is going back on on the road because that's going to be something over the weekend. But let's talk about what's happening in Afghanistan. There seems to be have uh, been a sudden recognition that the pullout from Afghanistan is going to have all sorts of unintended consequences. It looks like the Taliban is on the march. The government may collapse there. Uh, after we you know, finished our pullout by September 11th. But the most important piece of news this week, and tell me whether you agree or not, is was the, the announcement uh, or the, the reports that we, in fact, are going to be moving um, the thousands of uh, people who had served as translators for the American military, who would clearly be in danger, would clearly be targets of the Taliban. We're not going to leave them in the lurch. So there's at least some belated recognition that we have some moral obligation there. 
Now, that's good. Of course, when you really start thinking through the moral obligation, there are a lot more Afghans who've worked with us and done, you know, gone women who've, you know, started schools for girls and that the Taliban are going to also take wreck revenge on if they, uh, if they, can so I, I'm not. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, it's right. They're doing the right thing here. The Biden administration. The more right thing to do, the better thing to do, would be to halt the withdrawal and may, and reverse the decision. It's utterly and and again, even just from a geostrategic point of view, it turns out it's very hard. They had said, well, we're going to maintain some deterrence uh, against the Taliban and counterterrorism activity to make sure we don't literally have a kind of Al Qaeda situation again. Um, you know, from over the horizon, and we're working with allies to do it. But it turns out Pakistan won't have our troops and so we're not going to be right nearby. So the whole thing is a disaster, and it's utterly unnecessary. Of course, if you poll Americans, they're tired of the war and so forth. There was no real political pressure, on the other hand, to withdraw the several thousand troops we had there when there were very light, very few casualties and they weren't engaged in much direct fighting. And instead, Biden somehow had this bit in his teeth, and Trump had sort of started the process. And Biden wanted to be the president who got out. And remember the initial announcement? This, I think, shows how badly motivated and, and, and not thought through it was. We'll do, we're going to do it on September 11th, as if that's like a good signal to send to the world. So now it's just evidently a bad decision, I really honestly think, in every respect, and an unnecessary decision. It's one thing to be in the middle of a very difficult war, and you know it's not going well, and you say, okay, this isn't worth it. I, I, that, I didn't agree with that in Iraq and so forth, but it, you know, it, was a, it was not a, a crazy position. This is really just virtue signaling of a kind, I suppose you'd yeah. say. And so he should reverse the decision. And I don't think it would be that hard to reverse it. He just has to announce he's reversing it. There'd be two days of you know uproar on the left, and then everyone would go back to business, as we have been doing for several years with with you know several thousand troops in Afghanistan. I did see somewhere today that now he's saying he might leave five or six hundred troops. The whole thing is you know very gradually and incrementally being modified, but but I'm not sure fast enough or substantially enough to save. What could be a huge, I mean, A, it's humanitarian disaster and a moral disaster, but a very big political disaster. What, how do, you know, allies around the world, allies in that region, what do they think when they see, you know, uh, people who worked with us being slaughtered in, in Afghanistan? Well, and also you don't want to have the the television images of a Saigon moment of people, you know, scrambling out of the, you know, scrambling onto helicopters to get out of there. Um, you know, there, there are some of those images that are indelible. And they certainly don't. They don't want that. So the president, the former president, I'm. I'm sorry. I've, there are conspiracy theorists out there. Who go, you know, there's a reason why Charlie Sykes says the president because he wants to plant that. No, um, it's it's bitter experience and and PTSD here. So Trump's going out on a rally. He's going back on the rally circuit again. He's going to Ohio, and we have a piece up in the uh, on the in the bulwark today. It's describing this as, as as a pity party for the president. Uh, he's going to be attacking Republicans. He's obsessed with going after Republican congressmen who voted to impeach him. So just give me your sense about what it means for the Republican Party that he's going back out on, on the road. And by the way, I should mention he was on very ex- extremely low-rated Newsmax this morning. Uh, continuing to spread the big lie. Um, Whatever you think is going on in the president's head right now, um, it's probably worse. So my my guess is that we're going to hear a lot of that in Ohio. Yeah, and we won't hear much. Uh, a few Republicans may, you know, office holders may choose not to show up. Uh, the candidates whom he's attacking would show up, obviously, Representative Gonzalez, who voted for impeachment. But then, you know, the Senate candidates seem to be scrambling one over over each other to be uh, to endorse Trump and whatever he says. 
Yeah, so it's bad. It's terrible. And, and will even Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, has been reasonably responsible and certainly isn't a Trump, uh, vehement mm-hmm. Trump supporter. Will he actually stand up and, and, and say, you know, I just want to say in light of the president coming to our state, the election wasn't stolen. It was legitimate and fair in this state and in other states. We, we can't indulge this lie. I'm sort of doubtful that would Rob Portman say that. So even the non-Trump Republicans, the, the failure to stand up to Trump will be visible. And of course, there'll be a huge amount of sucking up to Trump by the, by the ones who think it's the ticket to uh, electoral success. Now, is it possible that Trump's kind of overplaying his hand, that people are getting sick of it, that uh, Tony Gonzalez will win in in, in Ohio against uh, Max Miller, his Trumpy challenger. I think that's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know, you know, there's some indications that people are still very much in bed with all kinds of uh, bad aspects of Trumpism on the Republican side, but they prefer the DeSantis version of it or the Haley version of it or some sort of newer version of it to Trump himself. Uh, or not. I don't know. But you know what? The, someone like Trump doesn't get defeated until people stand up and take him on. Yeah, that's right. And, that, and that's part of the problem. And I want to go back to a point that you have made over and over and over again. And, and this is not to let anybody off the hook who voted for him uh, in 2016 or who went along with some of his policies over the last four years. The, the most bizarre position is for people who have watched who Donald Trump is and watch what Donald Trump has done and think, let's give him another four years in office. And we, we had a we, we continue to get a bunch of stories about, you know, how this country dodged a bullet. You know, his attempts, his very, very serious attempts to overturn the election. And this story out of this uh, based on this new book that's uh, coming out about uh, the president where he had been, you know, telling advisors that he wanted the military to go in and beat the fuck out of civil rights protesters, uh, just shoot them. Trump said on multiple occasions inside the Oval Office when General Milley and then uh, Attorney General William Barr would push back. Trump toned it down, but only slightly. The author Bender adds, well, shoot them in the leg or maybe the foot, Trump said, but be hard on them. In the second Dodge the Bullet story is this uh, other book about uh, his handling of the coronavirus, how people very close to him thought that maybe when he got covid uh, that it would be a turning point, uh, that he, you know, pulled rank and got all sorts of treatments unavailable to uh, to the unwashed masses. Uh, that the, They were just simply hoping that if this fiasco was not the turning point, what would be? And of course, it wasn't. And the recognition that uh, if he was going to ignore the danger that he had personally faced, and he was much sicker than people thought, then there was really no hope in getting him to take the coronavirus seriously. So we get all of these stories. And yet, there are Republicans who are sitting around going, yeah, if he's the nominee in 2024, I'll, I'll, also, I'll support putting him back into the presidency. There's, you know, I, I know that this has gotten old, but I'm, I'm sure you have the same thought that runs through your mind. Okay, so there are all sorts of ways to rationalize what happened in the past, but you have had so many opportunities to just turn the page, to not be joined with this. And yet, here's the Republican Party right now, where I'm guessing the vast majority of elected officials are saying, this guy's nuts, he's crazy, oh my God, what did he almost get away with, what did he almost do? And yet, they will do nothing to stop him from getting the nomination for another four years in office. And they dumped Liz Cheney from the House Republican yeah. leadership precisely yeah. for coming to this conclusion. She had voted for Trump, supported Trump twice, uh, but she decided no, no more. And she understood correctly that it's a present threat and a future threat. 
not just a kind of let's be, you know, let's clear up the details about the past. So uh, Trump is, um, you know, alive and well, and, and Trumpism is alive and well, and in some ways getting crazier and more pernicious, as we've been saying, with the anti-vaxxism and anti-military and anti-democracy stuff, much more, uh, now that he's out of office in a way, they don't even have to pretend to, uh, you know, in the past that kind of constrained them because Trump was president. So you couldn't just say the U.S. government was horrible that we're becoming Rwanda because if so, why isn't Trump doing something about it? Well, now he's out of office. So now you can just be utterly and totally irresponsible. And that's the movement that Trump now leads. So I, we we can't uh, we can't end the podcast without uh, talking about what you're going to be watching this weekend. Yeah, this, you mean uh, our favorite British? Uh, yeah. So the new, the one new one that uh, Susan and I have discovered, which we've watched, I think two seasons of now, and and actually enjoyed quite a lot, is um, Unforgotten. Have you seen oh, that at all? No, I have not. So that's uh, detectives who they find, you know, uh, a skeleton from 30 years ago kind of thing. And then they try to piece together what happened. And um, it's, well, you know, it's 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 a little less intense, actually. You used that word about Broadchurch yeah. and, and about uh, Hinterland. And I think that was a correct word where, you know, there's a little more, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of drama, but it's um, a little more relaxed when you're watching it, I think. And very enjoyable, excellent acting by the two main actors. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, interesting. I, I actually would enjoyed that. So that's, well, that's, I don't know, I guess we have to decide, you know, how these things are though. I'm sure you guys have the same experience. Mm -hmm. If you start to begin one of the new seasons, you know, you're sort of like committing to watching yes. an hour or two, presumably for the next few nights, because it's a little hard to liberate yourself. So you sort of have to put off, maybe the, we'll put off a bit the third season. Well, so I also, there are three seasons, so, yeah. I, see, I, I'm, I'm in this uh, difficult situation because I'm, um, I'm I'm two episodes into season six, the the most recent and final season so far of Line of Duty, which is the you know my my uh, at least current favorite, along with the Queen of England. You know, do you, I don't know if you caught this on the podcast the other day that it turns out that, that uh, Queen Elizabeth watches the same show. She's like totally into Line of Duty, like I am. So oh, I, that's great. I, 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 I justify this I to my that. wife. I say, okay, so you know, I'm sitting there watching this, and some really violent thing happens. I'm saying, I wonder how the Queen reacted to that. <laughs> but the the Queen apparently has the same reaction that I have, which is that afterwards she needs to talk about it. So she talks about it with some of the courtiers, including the the Vice Admiral who essentially runs Buckingham Palace. And this was reported in the Sunday Times that the Queen really is into Line of Duty and really wants likes to talk about it and the very plot developments and characters um, with the vice admiral who basically runs the shop there. But I'm at the point now where I'm thinking, damn, I don't want this thing to be, what am I going to watch afterwards? Because, you know, have you ever watched these series where you're spoiled afterwards? Like a after watching The Wire, I was spoiled for a very long time. I think I was spoiled by Ozark for a while as, as well. So this is one where I really want to watch this weekend. I want to watch the, the last four episodes. <laughs> But I don't want to be done with it. Yeah. So, and I'm sure that the queen feels exactly the same way, although she may be slightly ahead of me on this. It's, it is possible that being the queen, she was watching this um, more in real time than I am. But, you know, that's that's one of the perks of being queen. I like the idea of Charlie Sykes and Queen Elizabeth having, you know, watching sort of in, in, in parallel this uh, the show. Well, here's the royal, thing. You've always had royal taste, Charlie. See, see, here's the thing, Bill. See, if I ever meet the queen, we will have something to talk about. <laughs> okay, choice. so I mean, I I will be prepared. Like, 
did you think that so-and-so was really the the bent cop in this series? Or were you really surprised by it? <laughs> Bill Crystal, have a great weekend. I appreciate it. You too, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again. 